Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and ISLC.org and the newsroom. I'm your host, Dr. Narjos Flores. This is Dr. Narjos Flores, Associate Director of the Cancer Care Equity Program, a medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute and an assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. In this episode, I'm delighted to have three amazing guests. We are going to discuss the importance of patient advocacy groups, how these groups are formed, how patient advocacy is important to lung cancer, the challenges of forming and managing large patient advocacy groups, and the future of patient advocacy in lung cancer. I have with me today three pioneers, patient activists and advocates and leaders. I will start introducing Ms. Janet Friedman Daly. Janet is a cancer patient research advocate and activist who translates the experience and science of cancer for others. She was diagnosed with advanced lung cancer in 2011 and metastatic ROS1 positive lung cancer in 2012. She collaborates, writes, and speaks with cancer organizations both international and in the U.S. She also blogs at Great Connections. Janet previously worked as an aerospace systems engineer. Welcome, Janet. Thanks. Good to be here. Our second guest is Mr. Shemos Carter. Shemos is from Ireland. He had a stage four no small cell lung cancer. He was diagnosed in June of 2016, and he has shared his experience with immunotherapy and many global platforms. Since his diagnosis, Shemos has been involved in drug development and the improvement of clinical trials in lung cancer. He's deeply involved in the Irish lung cancer community, and he's also a patient consultant on the Lung Group in Cancer Trials Ireland. Welcome. Hello, Nergist. Thanks for having me here. Our third guest is Mrs. Terry Conoran. She's one of the founders of the nonprofit group KRAS Kickers. She was diagnosed with a stage 3A KRAS positive lung cancer, and it has experienced separate recurrences. She has persevered through multiple treatments and has dedicated her time to patient advocacy. She has shared her story in national and international platforms and created a community beyond lung cancer to all patients with KRAS-driven cancers. Welcome, Terry. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. I had the pleasure of meeting some of our guests. We are going to be talking uh, and referring to each other and first name as we continue the discussion. As I mentioned, I'm delighted, super happy to have them here today. I have personally met two of them many years. Uh, we just quickly talked that Janet met me when I was still a fellow. So, but we want to learn about your experiences and the importance of advocating in lung cancer and these groups, advocacy groups in lung cancer. I will start with Janet. What motivates you to get involved with patient advocacy in lung cancer? Well, I was when I was first diagnosed, um, I'm a research person, and I like to go and learn everything I can about a situation. And 
the first real information I got was from an online patient community. They taught me about clinical trials. They taught me about biomarker testing at a time when biomarker testing was just getting started. Because of that, I ended up getting biomarker testing done and found a clinical trial for my particular type of rare lung cancer, ROS1 positive lung cancer, and have done very well with it. Um, I've had no evidence of disease since 2013. I felt so grateful at having the second chance at life. I felt like there was something I was meant to do. And for me, what it turned out to be was helping other patients, both in patient groups and getting the Ross Wonders nonprofit started. Even when my own cancer wasn't going well, being able to talk to other people made such a huge difference for me. And I wanted to be able to do the same for others. Thank you, Janet. You have been a pioneer in this area. And I can tell you that even some of my patients have shared, they have read your experience and they have felt motivated. Shemas, your story has motivated many patients and caregivers to consider clinical trials as part of the cancer journey. I can tell you that on Monday, so meaning yesterday in my clinic, I was talking to a patient about a clinical trial with immunotherapy. And I think Destiny was also recording this podcast today because he ended in a website in which you shared your story, Shamas, and he felt more comfortable being part of the clinical trial. So in a personal level, thank you that what you're doing already helped you know, many patients, but I faced it first thing yesterday. So what motivates you to get involved in patient advocacy, particularly when it comes to clinical trials? Um, thank you, Nar. Just that, you know, that's great feedback to get. Um, it's not often we get feedback on our uh, advocacy efforts, and, um, and that's just fantastic to hear that. Uh, actually, I didn't even begin to get involved in advocacy until after my own treatment had ended. During my treatment, I was aware of the stigma and the negative perceptions that are associated with lung cancer. And my treatment was in a centre in the west of Ireland, during which I didn't meet one other lung cancer patient over the two years. My initial uh, step into advocacy was with uh, Cancer Trials Ireland on a publicity campaign. And from here, I had the opportunity to join their lung study group as a patient consultant. Uh, Then the more I engaged with researchers and oncologists, the more I understood uh, the disparity between lung cancer and other cancers. This in itself was um, a big motivating factor. And from then on, I took any opportunities I could to educate myself and also to engage with the researchers. Thank you. I think, you know, for patients that are facing so much and also taking time to do all of this, I think it's, there's no way that we can thank all of you enough. And as we continue to talk to this, uh, Terry, I, I remember when we met in 2020, targeted therapy and uh, the targeted therapy meeting in Santa Monica. Little did we know that what was going to happen to the world at that time. We had a little sense, but we didn't know. Those were the early days of KRAS Kickers, and I still had the business card that you gave me then. How was your experience starting our organization from the ground up, Terry? 
you know, I had no idea how you had no idea how new KRS Kickers was when it started. And we met in 2020. We're talking it was like weeks old. I had just gone online with a Facebook group and not knowing that COVID was going to happen. Uh, it was just ready to just kind of grab on and hold, hold for the ride, hold for dear life. The thing that happened was because of COVID, I think that was really very helpful for KRS kickers to grow and get some initiative and inertia behind them. I saw the benefits of like what everyone had been doing with like EGFR and, and people like Janet kind of like paved the way as far as like the patient groups. And so there was value in it. And I wanted to connect with other people around it. But I didn't have the the background in science or, or training or anything. And so because of COVID, I was able to just kind of go through meetings and listen in on all the things that were being opened up to us as patients that I necessarily would not have been able to join in. Those were the AACR and ASCO and the ISLAC. And I got an introduction into all those things and was able to benefit from it. That's how I got any sort of an education. And then seeing the help and reasons for patients to connect with each other uh, for the clinical trials, for the research, to understand it and be able to apply it was so powerful. But I can remember distinctly meeting you that one day and it was like, women in lung cancer. And I never even thought of separating us out as a separate force of it. And I can't believe where you are and the things that we've come and how important it is that we're doing these things together, using our voices collaboratively and, and to make a difference worldwide. Thank you. And I think that brings a very important point is that it's together when we can do all of this and we need basic science researcher. We need, you know, cancer health disparities researcher, patient advocate, patient activists, caregivers, everybody or anyone can join us in this effort uh, to continue to understand and, you know, to improve research funding and remove the stigma associated with the disease. So my following question is for the three of you. Why are patient advocacy groups important in lung cancer? I'm going to divide the question because it's a big question and I want to cover all aspects. So I will start with Janet. Why are patient advocacy groups important when it comes with lung cancer research? That's a great question. There is an experience that goes along with lung cancer that patients and usually the caregivers are familiar with, but it's not something that you can study about the perspective is much different when you're experiencing it. Patients can bring that experience to the researchers. And sometimes their stories are used to motivate the researchers to remind them why they're doing the work. But patients can also be good partners in research. For instance, the group that I'm part of, the Ross Wonders, we have a relatively rare lung cancer. There's not a lot of us. And most doctors will never meet a ROS1 patient, and they often don't know how to treat them. The researchers may want to work on ROS1, but they may not have enough patients at their institution. These patient groups can help provide voices for many patients with this, the disease and perspective on what our experience is to help 
decide what the research question is or even modify research protocols so that it will um, a trial will be more accessible to the patient. One really good example of this is when one of the clinical trials was being developed for a targeted therapy for ROS1, and they wanted to say you could only have one previous targeted therapy to be eligible for the trial. Well, we were able to do a survey in a group and discovered that well over half of our patients had already tried two different targeted therapies. So if they wanted to be able to enroll their trial, they would have to modify their protocol. This is the kind of feedback that patients can provide that can really be helpful to researchers. We also helped a researcher um, contact enough ROS1 patients to be able to generate several new cancer models so that people could study ROS1 and find more options for us. Thank you, Janet. And a very big part of lung cancer research continues to be therapeutic clinical trials because they bring new options to our patients. So Shamos, as a patient advocate and activist, why are patient advocate groups important and not only clinical trials, but advancing cancer research in the right direction? Yeah, the, the role of patient advocacy groups in, in lung cancer research can't be underestimated. By having the patient involved uh, from the earliest stages, we make sure that the research is current and it's relevant to us. Uh, it ensures that the latest science um, is being utilized uh, for the benefit of the patients. And uh, we also add the human side to the research. By doing so, I think that we add a certain amount of urgency to the research that's going on. In practice, um, here in Ireland, I found this to be the case uh, where I've been approached to collaborate on a number of different projects, probably too many for uh, me to manage on my own. Um, in, in recent years, some of the larger patient advocacy groups in the United States, like the Ross Wonders, and the Keras Kickers have had the ability to fundraise and sponsor their own research. For me, this is the perfect scenario. It ensures that the research is patient-centered and addresses the research questions that are relevant to each specific group. Thank you. And I'm, I'm going to add a question to that because you mentioned that, you know, investigators are reaching out more to patients. I have been fortunate to work with my core group of patients since I was a fellow, but for some researchers, it's new, right? And some of them may have been in practice for a long time. Shemus, what do you think is the right way for an investigator to reach out to a patient activist or advocate when they're looking for their input, how this can be done appropriately? And I hope I'm explaining myself. Yeah, um, I, I think I think I understand your question. You know, I think it's um, it's about approaching the advocate in a in terms of a partnership that the the research want, researcher would like to work with the patient to achieve a particular goal, and at the end of the day, the goal is almost always the same that. The researchers uh, that the research will have a positive impact on patients' lives. 
And I can share my own experience because every time I send, I work with uh, Jill and I work with Ivy now for, my God, five years. Every time I hear from these two ladies, everything gets better. The study is better. We improve better. We, we have this large study about sexual health and that the pandemic happened. And uh, for example, Jill mentioned, it's like, how are these women having sexual activity if the kids are back in college and the house is full now, right? That was something that I didn't even think about it. And it was just introduced by, by Jill during these conversations. So I think it's just invaluable, the input, because, you know, I don't have the disease and hearing for her, it completely switched a whole part of the study that uh, make the study better. Uh, the third part of this question is go to Terry. So we heard from you already, you know, that a lung cancer diagnosis can be very isolating in part for geographic location, the stigma associated with the disease. There is no people around you that may have the disease. Terry, what, why are patient advocacy groups important to patients and caregivers during their cancer journey? You know, it's crucial to be able to connect with another human being around a common cause. And when you both have the same enemy, it makes it so much better for you to be able to have that sense of camaraderie, that call to action over that relevant issue. And it's not that people don't mean well, because they do, you know, the, the muggles, the cancer muggles out there that don't have cancer and they just want to help. They mean well, but it doesn't necessarily mean they can relate to what it is I'm going through. I mean, it's like my kids right now are in their 20s. I used to have infants. I used to have teenagers. I'm a long ways from that. I'd rather talk to somebody who's in that same place that same time that has that same kind of age group. And so even though somebody else has a cancer or somebody knows somebody who had a cancer, it's completely different. I want to have that inclusivity to walk the walk with me and the experience of the journey, hearing their points of view and, and seeing it, sharing that, that sense of togetherness is really what it's, it's all about. And we kind of vaguely term it, you know, support. But it's more than support because it really is more of a friendship um, that goes deeper than that. I, if, if I may, I'd like to add something to that. In addition to the emotional support and the friendship, there's great value in talking to other people who are having the same medical experience. We do a lot in the patient groups of sharing, hey, I'm, I'm having this side effect. Has anybody else had it? And people can share whether or not they've experienced it, but also what their experienced physician might have suggested that they do to treat it. Or they can suggest questions to ask the doctor. It's also very helpful to be able to talk to other patients about clinical trials. We've mentioned how important they are. Well, a lot of these patients in the groups have never had a clinical trial. They don't know anything about it. And the groups can help to educate people about what it's like being in a clinical trial because there's several people in the group that have been on them. 
and also encourage them and help them find ways to get on trials. We actually found in the Ross Wonders that in one of the clinical trials for a targeted therapy, 15% of their patients were people who had been in the group discussing whether or not they should join a trial or asking about what clinical trials are options they have. So the medical support is is important as the emotional support. I think, Terry, you find that in your group to some extent too. Oh, very much so. And in some ways, I think it's the same, but different because like we don't have targeted therapies. Um, we only have two, now two approved um, KRAS G12C drugs, which is only a drop in the bucket for the other types of, of cancers. And it's a matter of what is a clinical trial? How do I get a second opinion? What does that look like? You know, I'm scared that this is happening. I'm scared that this might happen. And so it's being able to have that sense of where am I going for the information? How am I getting that information? And then in the KRAS kickers, we bring in, we, we keep a list of current KRAS clinical trials that we try and keep as updated. We make sure we update it at least quarterly. It's updated as other things pop up, but we've got that information in there and help walk people through it. Because one of the best I think waste is to hear that somebody else is having some sort of an issue, whether it's sexual health or something you just haven't had a chance to talk to your doctor about. And you're not even sure how to use the terminology. And then, you know, we like to spend a lot of time also kind of like breaking it down. Um, I'm not a scientist. I mean, have no background in science. But I like we like learning alongside of each other with the science, with the doctors to be able to understand what is a RAS, what is a KRAS, what is a, a MEK inhibitor, how do things work up and down a pathway to make a difference, and what does it mean for a first-line therapy or fourth-line therapy, and what is a chemo pill, and is there such a thing? And I think we also spend a certain amount of time helping people assess whether or not the online resource they found is actually... Um, an accurate source of research or uh, a well, an evidence-based source of research too, because people have lots of questions and they bring in things they found online and not all of the information they find is relevant or helpful. So having talked to other people who've gone through that process is also useful. That's really something that I think needs to be underscored. And I'm really glad that you mentioned it. Because there's so many snake oil, multi-level marketing, or people that are just trying to sell us stuff. They're taking advantage of it. And having a group that has some people that know what it is and only are being research-driven, we have the opportunity to bring let them bring the question, ask the question, and it's like, well, where is this information from? And help dissect it without calling somebody out about it and let them see that there is no value to whatever that is. Shemus, would you like to add something to this conversation about, you know, how patient advocates and activists can help patients during their journey when not only research, but this little trick? Yeah, uh, I mean, I would completely agree with everything that Janet and, and Terry said. Um, for, for me, one of the things that I've observed here in Ireland is, as with my own journey, um, it's very difficult to meet other, other patients who are in treatment. And by providing a focal point and a, and a group that they can talk 
Um, it's it's camaraderie. It's it's learning from each other, and um, and really really big thing is that um, we can call out the the shysters, the people who are um, who are peddling their wares, you know, that don't have a scientific backing. So, so yeah, completely uh, on board with with um, with both Janet and Terry. And I would like to add to this conversation is that nothing can substitute the patient experience. And I, I have a few patients that they're involved in the groups. They're more on the observant side. And then one patient told me, I was like three months ago, I was in the EGFR resistors and these ladies say that these peppers make the diarrhea worse without simertinib. And I was like, okay, let's talk about it. And then she removed those peppers from her diet and the diarrhea significantly improved. So I think for doctors out there or for any other providers, the patient that's taking the drug, that patient that's dealing with this has an experience that you or none of the articles or studies can show. I, I bet no clinical trial for osimertinib say, do peppers give you diarrhea, right? So that is something that's so invaluable. And I can tell you, I have asked a lot of my patients, do you notice if your diarrhea is worse with peppers? And that just came for a patient advocacy group. And, and that's something you cannot make up or, or just buy anywhere or learn in any book. And my patient dies for it. Like she says, the peppers give her diarrhea. Absolutely. Um, and, and I think we also, I don't mean to interject. Yeah. I think we also like learn about other opportunities that there's no way that your oncologist can go through all at one time. Whether it's the integrative, the supportive, the palliative, like all these other sorts of things that may be of benefit, right? And at the same time, you know, sharing that, um, like having having the words in order to ask the question and feeling permitted to do so um, from listening to somebody else because that's the whole thing is like when you're diagnosed with a cancer, you feel like you're a dead person walking. Now that I feel that way, what am I going to do about it? And all I know how to do about it is take control of what I can, understand it best I can for next decisions, and keep on walking. And I think to expand the discussion, something that I have seen since I was a trainee is that patient advocacy groups, patient activists, patient advocates have really been essential to bring to the table the importance of biomarker testing because we're still not doing well with biomarker testing. And I, I have patients that even before they met me, they went to a patient advocacy group and they say, are you going to test me for biomarkers? So for the three of you and any of you can answer, or all of you can answer, the role of patient advocacy group to allow our patients to get the appropriate biomarker testing. Yes, this is, this is a huge item. Um, ROS1 was like the third biomarker that got an approved targeted therapy, but we're a very small group. So people who had EGFR positive cancer and ALK positive cancer were fairly reliably getting tested and ROS1 still wasn't. So it, it's a real challenge to try and 
approach this from educating the patients and making sure the patients ask about things. Ideally, we would love it if every hospital just automatically tested for all of the biomarkers that have approved targeted therapies. So there's a lot of work to be done both in policy advocacy and in educating patients and in educating providers. And the the NCCN guidelines, which a lot of people use for treatment, used to be updated like once every five years back when I was diagnosed. And now they're updated as many as five times a year. It's almost impossible for a general physician or a general oncologist to keep up with the pace of changes in lung cancer. And we have to find a better way of doing that. So everything comes with a challenge. And I would like to rephrase this question about more general challenges, not only challenges funding a group, but challenges in patient advocacy. So Shamos, what are some of the challenges that you have faced, you know, becoming a patient advocate and activist, not only in Ireland, but outside of Ireland? Yeah, so um, unfortunately, while there are a lot of can- cancer advocacy groups in Ireland, um, until very recently, there was no advocacy group supporting lung cancer patients. And that's only until about a year ago when a group of patients and carers and some researchers got together and set up the Irish Lung Cancer Community. On a, to be effective in Ireland, And to be able to fundraise successfully, it's important that we are registered with the charities register here. This is a a huge administrative task and our community are just on the verge of submitting our application. To support the application, it was necessary that we ran elections and have some structured roles for our executive officers and I'm delighted to let you know that I was elected as the first chairperson of the Irish lung cancer community. And so it falls on me and the team to uh, to build on where where we are now, you know, in our infancy. Regarding the collaboration outside of Ireland, um, I'm delighted to be a member of the IASLC and to have taken the STARS training programme. Successfully completing the program is like a badge of honor and it's a real door opener. I'm currently a patient reviewer for the European Medicines Agency, which can involve anything from reviewing patient information letters to part of the approval process for for new drugs in Europe. I'm also on the Lung Cancer Patient Advisory Group for the European Lung Foundation, where we are involved in a number of projects that aim to improve care and treatment for people with lung cancer. Back in 2021, I was delighted to be invited to talk at the um, AAADV conference um, regarding my immunotherapy treatment and the management of the side effects uh, of that treatment. And this also led to participation in an ECOG ACRIN study, uh, studying the effects of the microbiome treatment on colitis as an adverse effect of treatment. 
Thank you, Shem, for sharing for that, Wills. You certainly have been busy, and congratulations in the election. This is just remarkable. And you heard it first here in Lung Cancer Considered. Um, as we continue to talk, I also want to ask Janet and Terry, what are some of the challenges that you have faced and are facing when it comes not only to the creation, but continue the work of a patient advocacy group? I will start with Janet and then Terry. Well, the Ross Wonders group started in 2015. We were one of the first groups focused on a specific oncogene. And it's being a relatively rare oncogene, our first challenge was finding people and getting them all gathered in one place. Um, it, assist, it was helpful that the three patients who co-founded the program all had blogs that people knew, and they all knew we had ROS1 positive cancer. And so people found us that way. But it took us a while to build. We're now an international organization. We've got almost a thousand members, which isn't bad for a rare cancer. But I know that not everybody who's a member of our private Facebook group is still alive. So one of the challenges of, of building a patient group is you form close bonds with people. And then not all of them um, have successful outcomes on their treatment. It's hard to lose friends. One year, I lost a co-founder of the Ross Wonders, one of the most long-running patient advocates. The, the patient who told me about Ross One and helped me find the trial all died within the same year. So sometimes you just have to take a step back and take time for yourself and, and find things that make you happy outside of advocacy and, and recharge yourself so you can keep going. I think it's really important for the person who wants to be a long-term advocate to use skills they enjoy and be an advocate because this is something you enjoy doing. If you do it just because somebody has to, it's hard to put up with all of the disappointments and roadblocks and, and losses that come along with it. What do you think, Terry? Yeah, I totally agree. Being an advocate is not what I would have thought it is. And I don't, running an advocacy organization is completely different than I ever thought this would have looked like. One of the biggest challenges is these aren't just people or patients. These are friends that we lose. Yeah. And we're not as successful as an organization unless this outlives us. And there's always the eye on, um, I'm always a scan away. And what about next? And trying to keep, you know, the wheels on the bus. And it takes a team effort. And we really want to be able to keep that going. So it's not one person show. This is truly, it takes a village in finding the people that it takes within that village. And my role is village idiot. And I excel at that. So that's <laughs> what I do. <laughs> but, I, I, but I take that. And, you know, we all need to do that part of it. But if I had to get up every day and go to something that I hated, I, I, then I wouldn't be able to do this. But to me, I'm going out and I'm talking to people and I'm talking to brilliant people like MJ here and learning about the things that are going on. 
and learning about what's coming next and better understanding this thing that I have learned is called a KRAS cancer and what it is and what it looks like and where it's growing. And even though I can't change my diagnosis, I can't change what I had, what I can do is I can learn better and make a plan for what's next because there's going to be a what's next. And hopefully we can connect with other people along the way and build out that whole, that whole town. You know, it takes town criers. It takes the press. It takes the research. If they stop doing the research, there's like no point. All we're going to do is sit around and whine and complain. So you need to keep doing that too. And I think one thing you mentioned, Terry, is um, sustainability. The people who start these organizations have passion. They want to see it succeed they put in the time because it's important to them. But that doesn't last forever. Patient advocates, um, if, if their cancer is doing really well on treatment, they're, they're doing well, then they might want to step away from advocacy and pursue other things that they love. If they're not doing well, they may want to step away and spend more time with family. So how do you create an organization that keeps that passion, even if the original founders are no longer with the organization. How do you take care of the administrative things that Seamus was discussing about setting up the organization as a nonprofit and having somebody to handle the trip, the uh, bill paying and having somebody to go out and get the grants and focus and still focus on the things that are important to the patients and make sure that that continues if the patients are no longer there. That That's kind of where we are at the moment. Oh, absolutely. And wherever, you know, you are is someplace that we've been growing and going towards is Kira's Kickers because Kira's Kickers is, is not even three years old. I mean, it's, it was three years ago about now that I found out that I had a Kira's cancer and had no idea what that even meant. So that's where we're headed to next. And I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I know that the only way it can get better is for the other patients care partners, doctors to become involved and get the people to us so that we can find and I don't want to say sift through, but, you know, bring each voice, the beautiful voice that it has and let them shine, you know, because it it takes many stars in the sky. Let's be real and let each person kind of do their part in whatever that looks like. And sometimes that part is just being a, an idle watch on a Facebook group. And other times it's maybe, maybe moderating or maybe you're an admin or what have you. But that is so important. I'm hoping that one of the messages that gets out, this is lung cancer considered. Let's consider the fact that the patients need to know that we exist as groups and we're not trying to take anything away. We're on the friend side of this, we're on the research side of this, and it just takes us all getting better together. Thank you to the two of you for sharing your experience and being real. That's something that I love about the three of you. You are real, honest, and vulnerable. And there is no cancer, there is no lung cancer research without patient advocates and patient activists on my eyes. We can keep talking for time. We can say that. <laughs> um, but before we wrap up, I would like to quickly talk about in 2019, the ILCC created the STARS program. This stands for Supportive Training for Advocates on Research and Science. 
This program aims to train patient research advocates to bring the patient voice to research-related efforts. We had a podcast dedicated to this program, but I want to hear from you, your thoughts about the programs. And I always start with Shemus because he just mentioned the STARS programs. What were your thoughts with the programs and how do you get involved? The, the program itself was absolutely excellent. Um, as I mentioned earlier on, it's, it's a real badge of honor to have actually completed the program. And once you're out in the advocacy world and you mention that you have completed the program, well, it's it's a door opener. You know, people people are... are um, recognize the fact that it's um it's an acknowledged course that um that people who have been through it are educated in in the basics of the science and the communication and um and the advocacy and and everything around the this this world i couldn't recommend it highly enough the to 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 access the program um at that time it uh, involved, um, you know, completing a, a submission and gaining your place. Places were limited. So so there was about, I think, 12 or 14 of us who, who started the course. And unfortunately, as Janet had mentioned earlier on, you know, people don't always have the ability to, to finish the course, you know, for for treatment reasons or, or other family reasons but it's it certainly was a very worthwhile course and i would recommend it to anybody janet or terry anything to add about the program i went through stars during covid and so i didn't quite get the most robust um experience as far as being able to connect with the other advocates but what i did learn is how to better articulate information, how to better understand it. As patients, we have no background in any sort of like science or study or anything. We had nothing coming into this. Doctors come in with an education, a basic science, oncology, and then they have CME. This is about the closest we have to some sort of a CME for a patient to help bridge you into the advocacy. It was an excellent experience. We've been able to connect and see similarities with each other and really kind of connect with other patient advocates worldwide. There's a lot of energy in that ball of stars. I I am really pleased to hear that both Seamus and Terry feel they got something out of the program. I was one of the advocates who helped develop the program, and I serve as a staffer. And we've had to evolve the program. Um, The very first year, everybody who went into the program attended World Conference on Lung Cancer. And the very next year was a pandemic year when there was no in-person World Conference on Lung Cancer. So the program is continuing to evolve. But our goal is still to provide, as Terry says, essentially the continuing medical education, the aspect of learning about the science and the research. But it also has become very clear that one of the best parts of the program is connecting all of these passionate advocates to each other and letting them learn from each other. And we're still working on the best way to do that. But the program will continue because it needs to continue 
now that people are starting to think about the value that research advocates can bring to their efforts, they're making more requests and we simply don't have enough advocates to meet the demand. I have to say no to a lot of things. I'm sure that the other advocates must also. And we need to get more people who are interested. We need to feed that interest and help them find their passion in ways that they can contribute. Thank you for that. And that is my last question for this episode on Cancer Considered. How can family members, caregivers, and patients get involved in patient advocacy? Uh, We start from Janet, then Terry, then Shamus. Okay, if, if I can do a quick overview, there are a lot of different kinds of patient advocacy, and which part you gravitate to depends on your passion and your skills and um, your experiences. So most patients start out by telling their story in some way or participating in a fundraiser to raise money for cancer. But some of them might become involved in these patient groups and provide education for other patients or outreach to provide support for other patients. Uh, Some may get involved in policy. Uh, For instance, how do you help change the policy so more people get more biomarker testing or targeted therapies become less expensive or more people aware of how to do, what immunotherapies are useful for. And the one that I ended on because I'm a science geek is research advocacy with um, sharing the information with the researchers. There's opportunities in all of them. And I'll let Terry and Seamus talk about some of their opportunities and experiences. The opportunities are as wide as the job market. Whatever it is that you're doing for fun, whatever it is that just really calls and tugs at your heart is something that you can take and apply to advocacy. Whether that's political or neighborhood, or you want to do art, or like you want to be on Facebook, you want to understand stuff, there's a way to take that and apply it. And just kind of finding your voice and finding where you want to apply it is, I think, real crucial. I'm no different than I was before I found out about this KRAS thing. And I was trying to get involved in trying to do advocacy, but I didn't know how to take and filter in my voice and use it for, um, and find the right megaphone, I guess, for it. And finding that platform was what helped me find it. And I think when I talk to somebody, they're like, I want to help. I want to do something. I sit on and have a conversation with them. It's like, what would you want to do? And they're like, no, no, no. Tell me what you need. It's like, no. What do you do for fun? If you were doing art, I mean, like, like Lisa, I know Lisa does like art stuff. That's one of the things that she does. And she does some things that kind of help other people with, around the art. That's cool. That everybody doesn't have to go out and run around Capitol Hill. So that's, that's what I, that's what I tell them to do. <laughs> Um, so I, th- I think it's clear that there's a lot of different ways that people can advocate. But in my opinion, the first thing they need to have is the desire to help others. They can, they can do that in a lot of different ways. You know, they can um, contact one of the lung cancer advocacy groups and participate with them, you know, join them. I think a very powerful tool is uh, is social media um, to listen to and follow the opinion leaders in their areas. Uh, again, you know, during COVID, 
I picked up an awful lot of my own understanding and education from, from, from social media just by listening, following, uh, doing a little bit of research from, from messages that were out there. And uh, one thing is that I would always advise uh, people who, who are stepping into the space that they should accept any offers to collaborate on research projects because you're being asked to do it because people are interested in your knowledge and experience. Well, thank you so much to the three of you for taking the time. This has been a wonderful conversation. Um, unfortunately, we ran out of time. Uh, so many more things to discuss. Thank you, Janet, Shemus, and Terry for being here today. Thank, thank you for you. having us. Thanks for having us. Thanks a million. And thanks to everyone for listening to Lung Cancer Considered, the official ISLC podcast. And I hope you will tune in regularly to give us a listen. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Considered. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 